0: Hello and welcome to the Hardy Brain, the show that takes athletic introverted entrepreneurs and leaders and transforms them into ironclad brain performers. I'm your host, Dr. David Hardy. And today we've got another amazing guest on our show. He is the founder and CEO of Broadreach Global, a member of the board of directors for the European Brain Foundation, and is on a mission to enable and accelerate innovation that benefits human health and leaves the world a better place welcome to the show christian sojanin how are you doing today i'm good david
1: thank you i'm doing very well and um i love the way you encapsulated our mission statement there you made it sound much cooler than i ever have although uh, although i do agree with it i've never heard anyone deliver it quite that well so thank you for that
0: i love that mission statement and uh well brain health is just a huge topic out there and uh you're one of the entrepreneurs out there kind of leading leading in this this race to bring things to market that's going to help people out. Um, what's kind of been your entrepreneur journey then? Uh, how, did, how did you get to the position you're at now?
1: So um, that's a long one, and I'll try to give you the short version because I am not, as we discussed, from a clinical background. I'm not a neuroscientist, a neurologist or a psychiatrist or, or, or a clinical psychologist. I'm coming at this from a different perspective. Uh, as you can hear and some of our uh, your guests can probably hear, I have a Canadian accent. I grew up in Montreal, but I'm from Boston. I was born there, so a bit of a hybrid, but I spent most of my career in Europe. I went right. over um, to work on an internship and I stayed and joined a startup company in the tech space and was working with investors. Uh, that were actually looking for investments in the tech space. The European Commission is the main funding body for health research and other types of research at a European level, and they came asking us to uh, work with biotech entrepreneurs at the time, and we said no, and they they kept coming back and asking us again, and I, I looked at the founder, the CEO, and said we're probably going to have to do this, and he said fine, you work on it, and laughed, and um, <laughs> you know it wasn't entirely thrown at me, but. Um, I was, I was uh, working directly on that aspect and we began the first sort of boot camp training uh, biotech founders on how to understand and raise venture capital. And that required learning a lot about the business models. This was not brain specific. This was all areas of biotech. And if you think back to late nineties, biotech founders in Europe were mostly men. They were mostly uh, professors or, or department chairmen. Um, They generally did not have MBAs. They generally had never worked in industry. They'd never been in a startup before, but they were incredibly intelligent people and they're developing new drugs or platforms. So I learned a lot by osmosis, working with the top coaches in the sector and the top business schools and helping these companies understand how to present to venture capital. And after a few years of that, I left the company after a buyout and the European Commission came knocking again and asked me to do a turnaround of the oldest biotech federation, sort of an umbrella group in Europe, which was almost bankrupt. And uh, amongst the 30 board members, several of them were threatening to sue each other. So I figured I couldn't make it any worse, but I pointed out to them, I said, guys, you know, I'm not European. And they said, yeah, we decided that doesn't matter. Um, We just need somebody to try and help us sort this out. So I spent four years there and got much more involved with big pharma and biotech companies including on the research side, uh, learned even more, stayed involved with startup companies and began working with universities and institutes. So I left that after four years and a successful turnaround. um,
0: And I'm to right there because I'm itching to know, what were some of these traits and things you accomplished that had the European Commission knocking at your door? So I think the first time it was just
1: proximity. We were a company in Brussels where the commission was based. The founder was a very dynamic guy. And we were working with tech companies already. And they said, we'd like you to do the same for biotech companies. And uh, so I can't take any credit for that. I was just there when it happened and, you know, serendipity and was involved in it. Um, I think you're being too humble there. (laughs) Well, you know, no, honestly, that came our way. And we turned it down a few times before we, we finally got up the nerve, and and, and to be frank, the European Commission was able to introduce us to a former investment banker in the life sciences and the former editor who had just sold his journal and was, you know, sort of a trade journal, Um, and so these guys really covered the science, and that gave us a lot of comfort, Uh, and then we brought in some of the other business advisors in the space and said, fine, we can manage the process and work with the venture capital investors, Uh, but, you know, it was a learning curve for me, and it was a great one, And I guess after that, I built a real relationship uh, with the people at the European Commission and a network in the space, right? As somebody who could make things happen, get entrepreneurs to, you know, understand the venture capital process and work with VCs reasonably, sort of help bridge some gaps. And, And I think they wanted somebody that could network and do a bit of what I call cultural translation. But I don't necessarily mean, you know, China to the U.S., i mean culture in terms of an academic researcher has a different culture than the director of technology transfer at the same institution that institution has a different institutional culture than a big pharma company or a medical device company which has a different style than uh, a venture capital fund or a hedge fund Um, and then if you cross the atlantic or you go to asia There's another layer of complexity, and then you start throwing languages in, but I'm talking really just about institutional culture. People in one space think, oh, I work in neuroscience. I understand what big pharma wants in a CNS neuroscience drug, and they probably have some idea, but they probably also have some really big misconceptions, right? That they won't know until they have a company and they go and try to license their drug candidate or their platform to pharma. And then it's a real learning curve. Uh, but, uh, so I think my role was being able to sort of learn some of these things and facilitate some of these interactions. Um, and that involved a lot of advisory over the years, but a lot of bridge building and connections and listening to different stakeholders and trying to find a way or a model they could work together. So, We did a few things over the years. Some of them were pretty cool. I won't bore everyone with all of that because they can look at my LinkedIn and get a sense. But um, I got pulled into the brain space sort of in the same way. So I was involved. Uh, I don't want to spend too much time on it. But 2013 through 2015, I was one of the first employees and spent a year talking in advance with the founder of of a migraine app, which was supposed to be a digital therapeutic and it eventually pivoted. Um, I was not involved in the science, but sort of in the business model and the approach and engaging with industry. And that was very interesting, but I left with the feeling that the digital health space broadly had some major flaws and challenges in it that weren't being addressed. And I'm not referring to the specific company. I'm res- referring to what we found in digital health generally. Um, and so then
0: seeing uh, kind of an overlap then with digital health and, uh, than I guess the the chemical model. Um, and what have you kind of seen uh, kind of traditionally? Uh, farmers had this reputation of the drugs basically inhibiting brain function or perception. So what is kind of this shift and how do you get these new um, researchers to become entrepreneurs with this this kind of new... So those are a
1: couple of big questions, but you know, some some things that we saw in pharma, they've been hot and cold on neuroscience over the years, right? More investment, less investment, the same with uh, psychiatric um, uh, indications, they probably backed away about 10 years ago, and the past two, three years started coming back in as they started seeing...
0: We have a special announcement. Dr. David Hardy will be speaking at the Brain Capital Summit in Santa Clara, California, taking place June 26th to 28th. And we've got a special discount code for our listeners, THB23. We'll see you there.
1: As they started seeing, you know, additional data, new biomarkers, better understanding of some of the diseases. Um... Some potential for surrogate digital biomarkers based on digital health that could help in better design of clinical trials and better endpoints, the ability to measure certain things that couldn't be measured properly before, Um, and then real world evidence and distributed clinical trials. So. There were, there were a lot of things happening that made pharma and investors about two years ago become really interested in, in CNS, neuroscience again, and to some extent psychiatry, but it was less so, I'd say, two years ago. Um, and this was around the same time a few companies that I knew started reaching out to me for, for help on certain things. And somebody at the European Commission came knocking again and asked me if I'd be willing to have a conversation with the European Brain Council. Um, and you know, this was 2021 and I was trying to rebuild things post COVID. So I was delighted to have this conversation and it turned out there's a great board at the European brain council and the executive director is a really dynamic guy and they have a good team and I really enjoyed working with them. And that was pro bono, you know, but we built a a nice relationship and I've stayed involved and I ended up as a result of that on the board. Of the european brain foundation which is a legally distinct organization but it was sort of created by the brain council for other objectives and i don't want to get into that those because the mission there is quite long but if anybody's interested they can google european brain foundation and and find the website and they can reach out to me on linkedin if they want a point of contact there um, so that's sort of on the pro bono side but th- they were looking to engage with industry and investors so i started that with them. And at the same time, I started looking at the digital health space in neuro, because also in 2020, uh, somebody at the NIH, the the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences has an office of rare disease research and their deputy director had suggested that rare neurological disorders were one of the areas where AI and digital health was going to have the most impact. And I had never imagined that. I thought back to my days, you know, working with this uh, migraine app company and looked into the space and saw a lot in the mental health space, some really good companies with excellent financing and rock star teams, great people, uh, and then a lot of small, very innovative companies. But I saw some of the same challenges that I saw 10 years ago still exist. And I thought we should do a meeting in the technology space where we really looked at digital health, data, AI, deep tech across all of the modalities from, you know, your cell phone to wearables, to sensors, to imaging, to virtual reality, to neurostimulation and neuromodulation, to cognitive behavioral therapy, to minimally invasive and highly invasive implants for different conditions and sort of pull everybody into a room and see if the guy running uh, the precision medicine program at a a pharma company looking at, can we hit the mechanism of action, not for one mental uh, health condition, but for one symptom that is common across multiple conditions, right? And, And do a precision medicine, looking at the brain and looking at biomarkers and targeting that one symptom, can he or she sit down and have a conversation with a clinical psychologist using AI and cognitive behavioral therapy in a gamified uh, digital health company, which also has a CBT component. And then can the deep tech guys and the AI guys and the data engineers talk to the VCs and the deep life sciences people, you know, to, and the clinical guys and the health systems and try to figure out where are the real needs uh, where are the opportunities, but then to go beyond that, because there are all these awesome conferences out there where you see a couple of thousand leaders in the sector and they talk about what they're doing, but nobody tends to drill down and spend two days on, but these are the challenges that are hitting all of us. And how do we address those? Are there best practices, models, solutions? Um, are there are, are there things we can implement now? Guidelines, um, collaborations, or can we just try to develop a public-private partnership so that in two years or five years, we, we start to understand what the problem is. Maybe that's the best we can do, right? Um, and we did a meeting in Lisbon last October hosted by the Champalimo Foundation okay, with the European Brain Council as the convening partner and my company, Broadreach, ran it. Um, we really bootstrapped it. It was a small meeting, but it was awesome. I mean, the feedback was spectacular. People loved it. We're doing it again in October. Um, so, but that really looks at the technology. And what I wanted to talk to you about is this meeting that you're going to join in Santa Clara and Silicon Valley at the end of June. And that is looking at the brain technology, but also from a social and education and full lifespan uh, perspective. So not just here is mental illness. What are the What are the tech solutions for that? But is tech part of the problem sometimes? What about AI and social media? And right. then what, what can we do in the home and early childhood, in schools, in the workplace, in our communities, in sports, um, in startup companies, in the health systems themselves, and at a societal level to build brain health and wellness uh, across society, right? And, and there's a group that came up with this concept. I believe it was Thomas Insel uh, who came up with the idea. This is what I've been told. I was not there. He came up with the concept of brain capital as an asset class and a social good that impacts social well-being, but also economic growth and productivity.
0: Um, Let's stop you right there and dive into this, because you've given us so much information from basically the challenge of running all these different facets in a company with researchers, with uh, getting it out to public with uh, the government boards, obviously. And then of course you dove into looking at biomarkers and the technology that can be used and all these facets there. But just how big of a problem is brain health right now? It is. It is massive. And,
1: you know, we have used the language in convening this small summit, very high level summit in Santa Clara, that um, a brain and mind crisis is upon us. Right. right? That there are from mental health to uh, neurological conditions um across the board, there are issues at a higher incidence than than previously. There may be some societal, there may be some technology components in this. Um, There may be some nutritional components, there may be access to care components. And when I say maybe, uh, in my view, there are for all of those things. It's not one simple fix. Right. But um, if you look at the data, I think in Europe alone, the European Brain Council did some uh, healthcare economics assessments in 2012 and 13. And the number that they came up with in terms of just the cost of brain disorders, different from brain conditions, but brain disorders in Europe dwarfed any other disease area, including uh, cancer oncology generally, or cardiometabolic conditions so the big chronic diseases that we talk about where in digital health and med tech everybody's saying we're gonna we're gonna target the big chronic diseases like diabetes which is great it needs to be targeted right brain health is bigger but it's as a problem and a challenge but it's broken into different segments people do not necessarily consider mental health and youth Um, and neurological conditions and um, stress in an an adult in the workplace, and then an eventual cognitive decline uh, as being linked.
0: Like all of it's connected. And I think one of the major issues with mental health skyrocketing out of control is that A lot of physical things are being diagnosed into the psychiatric realm instead of treating the physical condition within the brain. Absolutely. And
1: and sometimes there's even a direct overlap. Somebody with a neurological condition may have some increasing stressors that put them at risk of certain mental health um, conditions as well. Right. Uh, Certain mental health uh, conditions, the medication can have an outcome which results in a neurological condition. I mean, if we look at a rare disease like uh, tardive dyskinesia, right? Um, this is a movement disorder um, and and uh, sort of an uncontrolled behavior disorder which results from from you know as a as a secondary effect of some uh, antipsychotic medications, right and these things are interrelated, and, and those medications, by the way, are needed, right? Until there are better solutions. They are, this is not an anti-biopharma. I still work with biopharma. Agreed. Uh, but there are no perfect drugs yet, just as there are no perfect one pill or flip-a-switch solutions for anything yet. Um, this is not to say I think there will never be. It's also not to think, say that I think it's tomorrow. You know, I mean, the, the psychedelic therapeutic space is incredibly interesting, but I think some of what we see in that space, the optimism is a little overzealous and is going to result in some blowback and slow things down if we're not careful, uh, but it could be transformational in certain conditions. Right. But
0: and, and I, I think you stated think- it at best earlier that this is multifaceted and this is what you're trying to bring together at this conference, isn't it? It is not its a whole bunch of people in different fields and talking about the overall brain health with... Multiple conditions at multiple ages, um, and this is not going to be a, a short conference. This is really diving in deep with some amazing people, isn't it? This is a day and a half, and we're
1: barely going to scratch the surface. But we have some incredible talks lined up, and some amazing panelists bringing deep insight. And we've really tried for a diverse set of uh, uh, you know views. And I have to say, I've probably had a hundred calls over the past three weeks with people from very different backgrounds and perspectives, um, getting their insight into what's missing in the program. And there are plenty of things missing. It's not finalized yet. We can't do everything, but there will be working groups that come out of this. There will be new collaborations. There, There will hopefully be policy recommendations that can be implemented locally at a municipal level, at a regional level, at a state or provincial level. Um, over time with some frameworks for models because you know what's going to work in Montreal might not work in Alberta and what's going to work in California might not work in Texas and vice versa right. But the objectives you know can we find a, a, an appropriate localized way to get to the right objectives I think that makes sense so we're trying to convene and bring people together and and the range is incredible it's going to deal with things that you touch on like uh, you know uh, concussion and traumatic brain injury uh, and rehabilitation and stroke. But it's also going to touch on things like brain health and wellness and stress and entrepreneurs and go to optimized self and peak human performance in the workplace. And for some people, this sounds like a wellness and fitness in Silicon Valley entrepreneur thing. But if we think about it, if we look at dementia, you know the the studies in the Lancet a few years ago something like forty percent of the risk factors uh, for dementia are broadly controllable from a lifestyle you know basis if people start making changes in their forties and fifties right it's not controllable when you've been diagnosed that you can't just reverse everything by getting better sleep and changing your diet and getting some exercise right but if we can make connect those dots. Right. That can have a transformational role if that can be communicated properly and it can feed into the optimized self and the longevity space, because most of the things that you would do for optimal brain health are things that we should be doing for optimal physical health anyway. So they're not contradictory. Right. Um, and, and, and I like the fact that you've got that, you know, as part of the approach the, that you're espousing. Um but even if we look at some of the research out of Australia, and this, this is a, you know, a touchy one because we talk about children uh, with, with autism or, or, or ASD, mm-hmm. but they did some controlled studies and they found when parents in one cohort began at the first visible symptoms right, of uh, autism spectrum uh, disorder, they began to implement some small behavioral changes in the home. Uh, Over time, the Australians showed a significant reduction in the need for healthcare and clinical interventions for those children as they grow older, which it's early days, but that implies one, less healthcare spend. Okay, great. You know, the the healthcare system saves some money. That's a good thing. That's not the number one thing here. The number one thing is those children are happier and their families are happier and less stressed. And, you know, if... uh, if you've dealt with entrepreneurs, you'll see many in biotech and tech that are somewhere on the, what I would call the neurodiverse spectrum, right? And, and why is that? Because they're often looking at a problem slightly differently than everybody in the room. And so somebody with ASD that is raised in a way that sort of empowers them, right? And I don't mean to put this on the parents, but the education systems, the health systems, and this needed to be understood, before anybody could do anything about it, right? And we're just scratching the surface now. Um, these, These children may now have a better chance to grow up, able to engage constructively rather than finding, you know, engagement, social interaction, somewhat traumatic, right? And that benefits not just them, but that benefits society and people that have seen really innovative companies whose founder or the or the visionary behind it is uh is is somehow neurodiverse um will understand this and the people that haven't worked with thousands of startups and entrepreneurs will think i'm crazy and you know there's one or two examples but no it's a relatively significant you know thing it is it is a it is not an anomaly there is a measurable you know uh percentage or frequency of people with a, a different stake on the pro, uh, take on the problem right coming up with a better solution and a way to implement it so i think that is a win win for society and if we if we come back if those children can grow up to be healthier if people can make changes now that reduce their likelihood of suffering from dementia or at least significantly slowing the progression until much later in life and maintaining peak cognition and brain function and health into into uh, you know their uh, old age, that's a benefit for society. If children in school can be supported, so learning for the neurodiverse, but also personalized learning for, you know sort of better adapted than our relatively industrial K-12 systems that we have, these, these kids can grow up to be happier and more productive, right? and, and exactly. brain health can be mental health. There's a lot of focus after the pandemic on mental health in children and youth. And there should be, Uh, but there's more to it than that. And can schools and our communities and our healthcare systems do a better job, you know, not just let's say diagnosing in the healthcare system or responding to, but providing environments. And this can go to the workplace Mm -hmm. where the, incidence of mental health problems is going to be lower, where the stress levels aren't such that they begin to affect cognitive performance. And I'm not talking about, you know, dementia, I'm talking a a bored, frustrated, overworked worker in a stressful environment is not going to perform as well as somebody who is in an optimized environment, right? And this isn't just about having coffee and beer you know,
0: in the common room and a ping pong table or whatever. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah, it goes far beyond that. And what I love about this conference too, is that you're bringing ed tech into it as well. That uh, it's not just about kind of the, the biotech side of things here, is that there's ways that we can start to improve how people function and more importantly, feel by integrating this into everyday life as well. And uh, the two industries that are kind of in the most disruption right now are healthcare and, uh, and education. And they're kind of outdated systems when you look at the problems that society is facing right now. And uh, these conferences, discussions are actually addressing these issues and uh, moving it forward. Um, who are some of the people you're bringing in to help out with uh with this messaging and to to uh to uh really shed light on the, the fields that they're excelling at sure so there is um
1: i mentioned thomas incel uh as i understand it is the one that came up with the, con- uh, the concept of brain capital mm-hmm. but there is an informal organization or network called the brain capital alliance and right. these are very eminent neurologists, neuroscientists, psychiatrists. Uh, many of them are dual qualified. Um, and they're in Europe, the U S uh, Canada, uh, Africa, Asia, um, Latin America, very, very eminent people. So they're the ones that sort of convinced me to run this summit. And there's a guy there named uh, Dr. Harris Iyer, who's a, who's a psychiatrist and also a PhD neuroscientist. Um, he's the one that, 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 that talked me into running this event with them. So they are, let's say the scientific and medical brains behind the initiative and Broadreach, My company is providing the, the capacity to run the meeting, but to engage with the different stakeholders and startups and venture capital and industry, um, there are, uh, this is the meetings in California. So there are already confirmed two of California's mental health commissioners. Uh, who are on board, both of whom, by the way, are venture capital investors uh, in different spaces, one in the future of work, one has a very much brain and mind uh, focus in investing. Um, There are some top neurologists, neurosurgeons, there are dual qualified MD, JD, sort of lawyers looking at um, early childhood brain health and development, um, we may have some of our friends from Europe, from the European brain council coming over to look at international collaboration models, even though this is in California, we have, uh, a number of KOLs coming from key opinion leaders coming from Texas. So we have the Meadows mental health policy Institute, which is a nonpartisan Institute. Um, they're a significant player and they're working with all the top health systems and the government and the private sector in Texas on rolling out mental health initiatives with a goal of ensuring adequate mental health care for every citizen in the state of Texas. Um, and, and they're doing amazing things. So here you have major players in California and Texas collaborating, and we have people coming from the East Coast uh, and, and, and elsewhere with a range of perspectives from full recovery from uh, what should have been a fatal traumatic brain injury mm-hmm. to um, clinicians, to entrepreneurs developing a range of digital health and technology and deep tech tools, some of which I mentioned might be uh, you know, a, a, an app on your phone connected to a wearable connected to cognitive behavioral coaching some might be gamified module models that are shown to slow the progression of uh, of dementia and maintain cognition some of which might be virtual reality for conditions like uh, bipolar disorder or depression uh some will be neuro neurostimulation um some will be implants there's uh, you know I, i'm thinking of one company that has a minimally invasive uh uh chip uh, that goes just under the scalp, which monitors with with uh, medical lab quality uh, seizures in epileptic patients, including the micro seizures that people don't even notice are happening. Right. right. So instead of just you know an hour in the lab or twenty minutes in the lab, you can have longitudinal data over months at the same medical quality. Now that's in development, but or other tools, for example, an optical scanner, which can, um, assess for traumatic brain injury, for stroke, for Parkinson's and for multiple sclerosis, right. And, and a number of others, which, which are really pretty amazing. Um, so, and, and it's a mixed, it's a mixed, uh, group of, of really impressive companies, many of them tying many things together, the technology, the coaching and the behavioral factors, the exercise and the sort of the lifestyle factors. Um, and then we have people coming in and looking at how do we implement this in school systems? Right? How do we take a technology like this and roll it into a health system at a community level or at a regional or national level? So these are big issues. Um, we're going to have the conversation. We're not going to solve everything. We're going to have a call to action around certain things. I don't know what that call to action will be yet. I mean, we are not deciding that the participants of the summit will, will sort of determine that by consensus, right? Where are the areas that we want to prioritize? Is there a new nonprofit coming out to be run by the group behind the Brain Capital Alliance, for example, and other stakeholders? Uh, So we have investors and family offices coming, uh, entrepreneurs and startups and growth companies, uh, foundations and accelerators. They'll be within about two weeks, the full program and list of speakers will be up. There are quite a few of them where we're we're figuring out the exact slots for them right now in the program and the roles. Um, Frankly, some people are so talented, they should all have a, a keynote and we don't have space for them all to have keynotes. So some people may be on a panel that probably should be given 45 minutes to give a talk, but right. we don't have it in the first meeting. So we'll do follow-ons. We'll um, in time, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, and, and the idea is to have a flow through all of these different issues that is somehow rational and sequential, right? right. So we can have an order of progression to the thought in a way that what was raised in day one in the early childhood aspect can feed into the recommendations that are coming out at the end of the conference on day two. And I call it a conference, but it's really somewhere between a summit and a round table and a convening of key stakeholders. And and we should say for your listeners, if they're interested, they can't come and sell Bitcoin. Uh, You know, you're not getting in, I'm sorry is not against Bitcoin. It's just not the right venue for that. But if you are interested in brain health, you're a practitioner, a researcher, an MD, a patient, or just interested in wellness and optimized self, you are welcome to register. Uh, we've kept prices as accessible as possible. If you're a service provider, like a lawyer or a banker, you're gonna pay a bit more because you can you can help us pay for the catering for everybody else, and uh, that's just life, guys. But you're there to do business, so I think that's fair. Um, Dave will have, uh, will have a code and a link that you guys can use to, uh, I guess it'll go in the show notes and yeah. that will give you a discount on the registration, uh, rather than if you just come to the site directly. So I would watch for that in the show notes. And if you want to join or want for more information, you can see the website, you can reach out there through the chat, or you can send us a message, or you can reach out to me on LinkedIn. Uh, there are not a lot of people with my last name, so I'm easy to find. And um, yeah, this is, Dave, I'm excited about this and I'm glad you're going to be able to come because, you know, you're coming from a different background, but it's a highly relevant one, right? And and we want these views. Um, and I want to see if some of the Silicon Valley entrepreneurs that are interested in optimized self and peak human performance are willing to look at the long-term and connect it to their longevity projects and say, how can we Dementia is part of longevity. It's not just about living longer and keeping your heart going. Your brain has to function as well, right? Um, And are they willing to look at learning in early childhood and uh, education technology and school systems that can serve all children better and at the workplace? What about athletes that have had concussions and TBIs, right? And they want to be involved in a A lot of people want to invest in startup companies. This is not what we're doing here, but my advice is if you're a family office or an entrepreneur or an athlete, and you think you want to invest in the brain health space, that is great, but you can't do all the assessment and due diligence yourself, unless you have a scientific and industry background and investment background in this space. So the way to do that is to co-invest with professional investors, with uh, top neuroscientists, with venture capital investors that maybe their fund can invest in a small company uh, because it's below their 30 million minimum investment or something. But if the VC themselves, with their track record in the health space thinks they want to invest and risk their own personal money, and you've got a couple of top scientists and industry professionals in that space, that's as good an endorsement as you're going to get, right? So in my view, that's the way to syndicate an investment for any of your listeners that are looking to invest in the health space. I would not recommend they become the only investor. I could be wrong, they could do it, they could hit a home run, but it's so easy um, for any company to, to underestimate the challenges or to misunderstand something about what has to be done to be able to be licensed by industry or to get real patient and consumer engagement or to be reimbursed, to get regulatory approval and a reimbursement code. Right? So my view is if it's a real healthcare, uh, application or therapeutic or technology, if you're interested to invest, that's awesome. Don't let anybody rush you, uh, do it collaboratively and co-invest with people that know the space. Right. And, um, you know, just co-invest on the same terms. You don't have to pay them for that. If they want you to join the investment syndicate, you'll be investing, uh, you know, at the same valuations, getting the same thing for your dollar as as they're getting. Uh, I'm not against advisors. You can hire advisors as well. But I would say even with advisors, work with other people who are fully committed to understanding both the potential upside and value and impact of the company, whether it is behavioral or technology or data or drug development. And they also understand the risks and the challenges Um, because it's, 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 it's a great space, you know, and you have to decide, do you want to work on behavioral health? Do you want to work on the, on the physical and lifestyle aspects? Do you want to work on uh, neurostimulation that can have a real effect on uh, mental health or depression, right. or do you want to work on something that can be used in the workplace or that can help the uh, you know uh, the elderly, our parents, and our, our you know our friends and neighbors and ourselves as we age? All of these things there's huge opportunity, but it's really important to understand uh, the process and and the risks and the potential upside and and how that needs to be accomplished, right? So that's my advice. If you're interested, you'll meet these guys there. Um, You know, if you can develop relationships with some of them, that might be really interesting. Uh, If you're a startup company, it might be worth checking out. Or if you just wanna get involved, and if you can't make it there, we'll do some other meetings down the road, some of which might be virtual. And uh, I'll be happy to introduce Dave to some of our speakers so he can bring them on the podcast afterwards.
0: <laughs> Excellent. Well, I appreciate this. This is absolutely exciting that uh, things are happening in the brain health world and you're bringing it together. And the Brain Capital Initiative Summit is. A starting point to really start to bring a lot of these uh, new technologies to people, so that the impact can be made and we can see a difference right away. So I absolutely applaud you for herding the cats and putting this together and bringing me on board for for one of the panel discussions. So I look forward to it. And for everyone listening, stay tuned to the next episode of the Hardy Brain the show that takes athletic, introverted entrepreneurs and leaders and transforms them into ironclad brain for performers. (laughs) Take care.